Let's read together this morning, Luke chapter 5. Now Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and the crowd was pressing around him to hear the word of God. He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then Jesus sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your word I will lower the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets started to tear. So they motioned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they were about to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's business partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. So when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came to him who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he bowed down with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered the man to tell no one, but commanded him, go and show yourself to a priest and bring the offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him spread more, and the large crowds were gathering together to hear him and be healed of their illnesses. Yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Now on one of those days, while he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was on him to heal. Just then, some men showed up, carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher. They were trying to bring him in and place him before Jesus, but since they found no way to carry him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down on the stretcher through the roof tiles right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their hostile thoughts, he said to them, why are you raising objections within yourselves? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, stand up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he stood up before them, picked up the stretcher he had been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. Then astonishment seized them all, and they glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, We have seen incredible things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him, and he got up and followed him, leaving everything behind. Then Levi gave a great banquet in his house for Jesus, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. But the Pharisees and, the, and their experts in the law complained to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples frequently fast and pray, 
and so do, the, so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours continue to eat and drink. So Jesus said to them, you cannot make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But those days are coming, and when the bridegroom is taken from them, at that time they will fast. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. If he does, he will have torn the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Instead, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. No one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says, the old is good enough. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a moment of silence. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. If we haven't met yet, my name is Shana. I'm the family ministry director here at LCC. Normally at this time, I get to be upstairs with our amazing kids, which I absolutely love. But as my family sit at my dinner table last night, well, somebody's got to teach the big, big kids. Um, Apparently, big, big kids is all of you. Um, And today that somebody is me. So let's dive in. Um, As you probably have realized, we are diving into Luke chapter 5 today. But I thought we'd take a quick minute to remind ourselves of where we've been so far in Luke and perhaps revisit some of the big ideas of Luke because that is going to help us kind of frame um, the ministry that Jesus begins here in chapter 5. I think it's the kids and student pastor in me, the whole like revisiting thing. Review is just, it's just a good learning tool for, for young people. And so, and you know, maybe for us too. I don't know. We can be humble. So um, to help us out today, we're going to watch a quick video from the Bible Project on the first part of the Gospel of Luke, just to remind us where we've been so far. The Gospel according to Luke began by telling us about the births of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And in the next section of the gospel, Luke zooms forward in time. So John is now a prophet and he's leading a renewal movement down at the Jordan River. And all of these Israelites are coming to be baptized. The poor, the rich, tax collectors, even soldiers. Yeah, what's going on here? So all of these people are dedicating themselves to a new way of life. By getting dunked in a river? So long ago, Israel came to inherit this land by crossing through the Jordan River. And God gave them a responsibility. They were called to serve him alone, to love their neighbor, and pursue justice together. And we know from stories in the Old Testament that they've failed at this repeatedly. Right. So John's calling Israel to start over, to go back through the river and come out rededicated to their God, ready for the new thing that God's about to do. And so it's within this renewal movement that Jesus first appeared. Jesus is baptized by John, and the sky opens up, and a voice from heaven says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, God's words here are packed with echoes from the Hebrew scriptures. This first line is from Psalm 2, where God promised that a king would come who would rule in Jerusalem and confront evil among the nations. And then this next line is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, and it refers to the Messiah who would become a servant and suffer and die on Israel's behalf. 
After this, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days with no food. I mean, that's roughing it. And in this story, Jesus is replaying Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness where they failed to trust their God and so they rebelled. But Jesus succeeded by resisting temptation and trusting God. And so this story is marking Jesus as the one who's going to carry Israel's story forward. After the wilderness, Jesus comes back to the region of Galilee, to his hometown, Nazareth. He's in the synagogue and he's invited to read from the scriptures. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Why to the poor? Well, in Hebrew culture, being poor wasn't just about money. It was more about low social status. So women and children and the sick, people on the margin. And surprisingly, this could include people who had money, like tax collectors. They were considered outsiders too, and so Jesus is here for them. Then Jesus continues reading. The Lord has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Freedom seems like a big deal for Jesus. Yes, Jesus was freeing people from their sicknesses, from their past, from their shame, and he was freeing them to become a part of God's new kingdom that Jesus said he was bringing into reality. After this, Jesus appoints 12 men from among all of his disciples as leaders to help him in his mission. And that number, 12, it's a very intentional symbol of the 12 tribes of Israel. But this is a ragtag bunch of guys. You've got a fisherman, you've got a former tax collector who worked for the Roman occupation, you have a former rebel who fought against the Roman occupation. There's no way these guys are going to get along. Yeah, Jesus intentionally brought together people who were outsiders and sworn enemies, but inside God's kingdom, they're called to reconcile and to live in unity. Following Jesus meant entering a new world order. And so Jesus went on to teach, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you because of me. Jesus even told his disciples to love their enemies, be strangely generous, even to people they don't like, to forgive and show mercy. This is a radical way of life. And Jesus not only taught about all of this, he promised that he would lead the way, that he would be radically generous and forgive and love his enemies by making the ultimate sacrifice, by giving up his life. The last story in this section of Luke is fascinating. Jesus takes some of his disciples up onto a mountain. God's glory appears as a bright cloud, and Jesus is suddenly transformed. And there's two other prophets that appear, Moses and Elijah. Yeah, they're the ancient prophets who also experience God's glory on a mountain. And then God speaks from the cloud saying, this is my son, listen to him. Luke is showing us that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He is God's word to Israel. The three of them talk about what Jesus is gonna do when he arrives in Jerusalem. What's he going to do? He's going to go to the capital city to be enthroned as Israel's true king, but not in the way that anybody expected. And with that, Jesus' mission up in Galilee comes to an end. And the next part of Luke's gospel begins with his long journey to Jerusalem. Okay. So hopefully that's just a few good reminders. And also we'll look ahead of what we're gonna be talking about the next couple of weeks during this kind of section of Jesus's ministry. There are a number of important themes to pay attention to in Luke, but specifically in, in these chapters five through nine, where we're kind of beginning today, 
we see Jesus really putting into action what he declared in chapter 4, that the kingdom of God is good news for the poor, the hurting, and the outcast. The Nazareth announcement from chapter 4 sets the agenda for Jesus' healing and teaching ministry in chapters 5 through 9. Jesus says he's come about to bring a new Israel, one that includes all kinds of people. Luke really likes to emphasize the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, a place where power structures are reversed and the walls that society has built around who is in and who is out are torn down. It's a place where the humble and the poor and the outcasts are elevated to places of honor and where all are offered freedom from evil and sin. In this part of Jesus' ministry, Jesus reaches out to fishermen, to lepers, to a paralyzed man, to a tax collector, crowds and crowds of people, a man with a deformed hand, a Roman centurion's servant, a grieving widow, the blind, the deaf, a prostitute, people tormented by demons, and a hunchbacked woman. In every one of these actions, Jesus refuses to recognize socially constructed boundaries concerning who can be in and who are out. All can now belong to God's family. And while Jesus interacts often with those who are considered to hold more honor in this society, say the Pharisees or the wealthy or the scribes, these people generally respond to Jesus' call very differently than the ones I listed before. So let's take a closer look at the beginning of chapter 5. The scene is set by Luke. We're on the edge of a lake. There is a large crowd that is pressing in around Jesus. And in order to teach this large crowd and to get some distance from them, Jesus climbs into a boat and he sits down to teach. This was a traditional posture for a teacher or a rabbi when he is getting ready um, to teach or talk about the word. You've got some fishermen who, after a night of fishing, are over here kind of repairing and washing their nets. And Jesus steps into Simon's boat. And Simon is already familiar with Jesus. They've already had some interactions, all right? So they move the boat a little away from the shore. And Jesus teaches the crowd. We're now really told the content of this teaching. Rather, the focus here is on how people respond to Jesus. When Jesus is done with this teaching, Jesus turns to Simon and he tells him to put his net in the water. Try fishing again, Simon. Now, Simon is an experienced fisherman. He likely had a successful co-op with a couple of his buddies. He provides decently for his family. He knows that with the way their nets are built, that it is best to fish at night when the fish can't see the nets. During the day, the fish can see the nets, and you'll not catch anything that way. Even a fish knows better to, than to swim into a net it can see. On top of this, Simon's already been fishing all night. He's probably very tired, and he kind of informs Jesus that they, the ones who know what they are doing, who are fishermen, have already been working all night and have caught nothing. And the implication here is to do so now would be meaningless. However, because Simon has already seen Jesus do things, cool things, like heal his sick mother-in-law, he gives it a try. He says, but because you, you, Master, you, Jesus, say so, I will let down the nets. As we read, the results are, of course, miraculous. And Simon responds by declaring that Jesus is Lord and he is a sinful man. 
Now, Simon does not necessarily mean that he is evil and he has done terrible things when he says he is, he is a sinful man. Rather, he is recognizing the great distance and the great difference between himself and Jesus, who he can see as somehow connected to the agency of God. He doesn't totally understand who Jesus is yet, but he can see that he's connected to the agency of God. So Simon humbles himself and he honors Jesus. This is a stark co- contrast to the people that we learned about last week in chapter 4 who seek to keep Jesus for themselves. Jesus moves on from those people, but Jesus looks at Simon and James and John, who are also there, and he calls them to follow him. And they leave everything, and they follow him. Jesus chooses these everyday ordinary fishermen to begin building his disciples. So from here, Jesus breaks another social boundary by touching a leper, an action that would have made him unclean in the eyes of those around him, ritually unclean. He would have had to go through processes to become clean again. He heals the man, and the man is able to return to home and family. More walls are coming down. Next, we see a paralyzed man. This man has no way of getting himself to Jesus. There's a huge crowd. There's no way to get around it. If he didn't have friends to bring him to Jesus, this man would remain on the edges of this crowd, and he would never make it to Jesus. Jesus calls this man to be freed from both his sin and his broken body. He calls this man to stand up and walk to his home, and he does exactly that. And we have another man returned to home and full life. A little while later, Jesus seeks out another man, a tax collector, who's sitting in his booth, His name is Levi. Now, as our video shared, Levi isn't poor. He's actually quite wealthy. Um, He is a tax collector in terms of, like, wealth and possessions. He's not poor. Um, He doesn't need to be healed. But Levi is an outcast, too, a deeply disliked outcast. Remember that at this point, Israel is under the control of the Roman Empire, the forced military control of the Roman Empire. And tax collectors worked for the Roman government, the hated oppressors. They took people's taxes and often a little extra on top of that just to keep for themselves. They were seen by their fellow Jews as traitors in turncoats. This was a deep betrayal to work for the Romans. So Levi would have been on the edge of both worlds, too Roman for the Jews, too Jewish for the Romans, no place to belong. But Jesus comes along and says familiar words, follow me. Jesus' call for Levi to follow him is not conditional upon Levi leaving behind his tax-collecting ways. Jesus, says, Jesus doesn't say, do these five things and then you can follow me. He comes to Levi and says, follow me. The call does not depend on Levi, but on the authority of Jesus, and Levi must respond. Now, Levi's circumstances are very different from Peter and James and John, but Jesus' call to discipleship asks the same thing of him as it did them to leave everything and follow Jesus. The everything here seems to mean more of a reorienting of his life. He does not seem to leave all of his possessions because in the next verse, he throws a really big party. He throws a big party and he invites a whole bunch of people like him to meet Jesus and celebrate together. So this narrative is the first of several meal episodes in Luke Um, And these episodes blend together two really important and deeply rooted traditions of this time. First, the tradition of table fellowship, as was practiced by the Jews, um, which was a time of celebration, of feasting, 
um, of relationship. So for the Jews to share a table together in this kind of a setting was to share life together. Second, the Greco-Roman tradition of the table as symposium, a place of discussion and table talk that usually revolved around a host and an honored, wise guest and other guests. It's important here that the host is a tax collector, a hated tax collector, that Jesus is the honored guest, and we're told that there are just other tax collectors around as well, as guests, as well as others, Luke says. The Pharisees, who would have been normally expected to be at the top of the guest list, are outside, <laughs> grumbling about who Jesus is eating a meal with. So both the people that Jesus chooses to eat with and the content of his teaching, his table talk, demonstrates further that the boundaries around who are God's people are expanding. But this expansion does not come from embracing some and rejecting others, but rather it comes through Jesus just completely getting rid of all requirements for membership except one, repentance. These banquets in Luke are, uh, with Jesus are a glimpse of the kingdom, a kingdom with diverse guest lists, unusual outcomes. <laughs> They're really cool. In James Edwards' commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Edwards writes, he's, sorry, let me rewind just one second. In response to the grumbling of the Pharisees, Jesus responds, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Edwards' commentary, Edwards writes about what Jesus has just said, this saying does not mean that Jesus is indifferent to righteousness, but rather that his fellowship with the disreputable was an unforgettable hallmark of his ministry and an enduring lesson to the church to embrace the socially marginalized or outcast. The grace of God extends to and overcomes the worst forms of human depravity. Ironically, in one sense, great sinners stand closer to God than those who think of themselves righteous for sinners are more aware of their need for transforming grace. So I've been thinking a lot this past week as I've been kind of preparing for this sermon um, about the walls and boundaries that in current day American culture, I just wonder what are some of those that Jesus might dismantle at the table in our current American culture? How do we today decide, rightly or wrongly, who is in and who is out? There's the obvious lines in our country of politics and age and race and cultural hot-button topics. Um, we have a lot of ways that we like to group people, that we like to label people, that we reject or accept people. And even our very laws can lend to this action. This isn't always a bad thing. Boundaries and parameters can make society safer and more ordered. So how do we discern when we are using a wall to say, keep someone out of the kingdom of God? To whom might we be saying, you can't be here, you're to this, or you're to that, or I can't be around you, or you don't belong here, or to say it even more simply, who around me do I just have very little curiosity about? Who do I want to just write off and not really have interest in? The people around Jesus might have thought he came to overturn Roman rule and oppression, but that is not how Jesus saw his coming as king. He did very little to change the circumstances of Roman rule. 
Instead, he came to proclaim and by his actions on the cross bring about a much more important kingdom, the kingdom of God. A kingdom where all have a place to belong, all have a seat at the table, especially those who have no place in the Roman hierarchy of power and no voice or power of their own. Some days, I definitely need to be reminded that each person has a seat. I get comfortable with the people I know and like. I fail to notice when I dismiss people, when I build walls between us. Or some days I totally notice, and I choose to do this. I choose not to engage with others because of maybe the things going on with me or other reasons. I see you over there, a person on the edge of things, lonely and rejected, but I just, I can't today. I can't, I can't do that today. Sometimes the people who need the most belonging ask for it in the most unhelpful ways. Kids are like this a lot. And that's hard. It is. It just is. It's not their fault, but it's hard. Sometimes I cannot see how God could ever expect me to share a table with certain people, ones who have caused me deep hurt. They can be in God's kingdom, that's just fine, but not at my table. They can have a different table. Sometimes I just wish that people would just, I don't know, behave better. <laughs> if they could do that, the table would just, it would just run a lot more smoothly. It could be planned and controlled. I could know the outcomes of what might happen. And of course there are people around me who don't have a voice. They have no power. They can't change their own circumstances. But to be a voice for them or to work on their behalf might harm my own reputation or standing in society. Might even harm my family, my possessions. I don't know, the list goes on. I don't have easy answers to some of the hard parts of broken people trying to live out the kingdom of God together. The communities that were built around the ministry of Jesus and later the disciples and Paul that we read about in the New Testament also didn't have easy answers, but they kept trying. And they often didn't do well at this. We know this because we read the New Testament. <laughs> we read from Acts and the letters. We know that we're not alone in our failures. And we also know we're not alone in the grace that we receive from Christ. I do know that I often feel as though I'm not doing such a great job of following Jesus in this way. That I am not including everyone in the kingdom. And when I feel this way... I need to be reminded that I, too, have a place at the table. You have a place at the table. We belong not because we follow rules or how we behave or dress or talk or how hard we work, but because Jesus, in all of his sovereign authority, says that we do. I have a place at the table when I'm tired, when I'm sad and anxious, when I'm at capacity, when I'm overwhelmed, when I'm not feeling well, when I'm coming up short. Because Jesus says so, I have a place at the table. When we have been rejected, when we've experienced great injustices, when we have been pushed to the outside and isolated and left all alone, Jesus sits down with us at the table and invites us to follow him. And like Simon and like Levi, and even to a certain extent like the leper, and the paralyzed man, and the Pharisees, we must respond. What will our response be? 
some of you here today, you might need to hear this. You belong in Jesus's kingdom, and you belong here. There's a place for you here in this family. There is. Jesus embraces those whom society shuns. He seeks the lost, but not only out of compassion, which, I mean, that's a really good thing. Compassion is a really good thing. But he does this not only out of compassion, but in order to rescue them. When repentance leads to the finding and being found, a joy comes that is worth feasting together, worth celebrating together at the table. So I have to, I have to tell you all, this is not in my notes, I'm improving. uh-oh. <laughs> I'm pulling a mic. I have to tell you all that as I was writing this, over and over again, I had to resist the temptation to go off on my soapbox on all the ways that I think we're not doing such a great job of this um, as the church. Over and over again, I'd find myself typing something out. And of course, my soapboxes, you know them, kids, teenagers, whatever. You know, all of the ways that I think that we're kind of letting down our side um, as the church. And each time... I would write out these paragraphs, I'd get all fired up, and then I would realize that here I am trying to put myself in the place of what Jesus is doing to call us. And I would highlight and I would delete <laughs> and I would move on to the next thing. But I was struck at how tempted I was to try and create my own rules for us, my own lines for us, to move away from this idea that repentance is the only thing we need to belong to the kingdom of heaven. And yes, is, is Christ inviting us here to analyze, to, to look at, at who we are sitting with at the table and who we are not sitting with at the table? Absolutely, and we should. And we should do that in the spirit of Simon with humility, recognizing that we are sinners and he is Lord, and allow the spirit to do that hard work in us and to do the hard work of actions after that hard work of the spirit in us with what it looks like to include people here in our family and in the kingdom, and tear down the walls that have been put up. But I, I guess I myself just want to be cautious that I'm not moving in the direction of Pharisees, of legalism, of doing the same things that just build more walls, not less. So on that note, let's celebrate together at the table this morning. Celebrate our findingness and our foundness together and have joy at the table.